Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, this is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of. In this series of short lectures, you'll learn about the core principles for overcoming an anxiety disorder and OCD. In this lecture, we'll, be, we'll discuss the therapeutic attitude of willing acceptance. Anxiety disorders are created, maintained, and intensified by avoidance and are overcome with approach and exposure. Identifying and observing the details of your anxious moment will help you know what to do, what to challenge, and how to do the opposite of avoidance. Let's start with understanding the difference between an anxiety state and an anxiety disorder. An anxiety state is a normal, natural, healthy, and adaptive reaction to a threat or perceived threat. In the presence of a perceived threat, we get anxious sensations, the fight or flight response, as well as catastrophic thinking. Your fight or flight response might include an increase in heart rate, sweating, blood rushing out to your stomach, out from your stomach to your arms and your legs, an increase in blood pressure, pupil dilation, and muscle tension. In the presence of muscle tension, people often take deeper breaths. As you breathe out, you experience a change in CO2. This is not dangerous to you, but it can make you feel dizzy and tingly. In addition to the fight or flight response, people often experience catastrophic or worry thoughts. The various anxiety disorders are marked by the difference in the content of the fear. For instance, in the presence of the fight or flight response, some people will fear their sensations and then avoid um, in response to those sensations. We call that panic disorder. Some people fear the feeling of judgment, rejection, and embarrassment and avoid in response to situations that would trigger those experiences. That's called social anxiety. Generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder can be seen on existing of a, on a spectrum of thoughts from egocentric to egodystonic. That's just jargon for what seems reasonable versus what seems unreasonable to the person having the thoughts. So a, a generalized anxiety, egocentric worry thought might be something like, what if I lose my job? And the avoidance behavior and response might be checking and rechecking work email, getting reassurance from a boss or coworkers, or overworking. Comparatively, an OCD egodystonic thought would be something like, what if the door isn't locked? Even when a person just watched their hand open or lock the door, and that this thought could give them the feeling of uncertainty. In the presence of the feeling of uncertainty, the avoidance behavior could be checking and rechecking the door, taking a picture of the door, getting reassurance from a friend that the door is locked. All of these responses are examples of avoidance behaviors. Avoidance behaviors function to temporarily reduce discomfort but just create more and more uncertainty over time. When you do something in response to a feeling of uncertainty, 
it makes the feeling of uncertainty more likely to occur in the future. If that becomes a frequently used behavioral pattern, we call this an anxiety disorder. In order to get through anxiety disorders, you have to do the opposite. It's very important to identify the specific avoidance behaviors that you're engaging in and then specifically choose to do the opposite of that avoidance. That's the basis of exposure exercises. Exposure and response prevention is the main technique used to overcome anxiety disorders and OCD. What that means is exposure as the opposite of avoidance and then response prevention, meaning not doing any of the avoidance behaviors. So the spectrum of your response to anxiety can range from avoidance to exposure. The belief of a person who avoids is that he or she is in danger. In contrast, the belief of a person who exposes herself to the anxiety on purpose is that anxiety is an opportunity to learn. What we're trying to do is teach ourselves that anxiety is an opportunity to learn. So exposure is the willing act of putting yourself in psychological and physical situations that will induce fear and anxiety so that you can learn over time that you can handle it and that you don't have to avoid. Willing exposure is challenging in the moment of anxiety, but in the long term, it will decrease your anxiety. There's a couple different theories about why this works. One theory of why exposure works is habituation. This theory understands that fear, the fear response is similar to all other senses. For instance, if you were to enter a room that, spell, that smelled distinctly, if you stayed there, after a little while, your sense of smell would adapt to the smell in the room and stop notifying you of the smell. If, on the other hand, you left the room and re-entered repeatedly, you'd notice, you'd notice the smell anew each time. In the first situation, you are habituating. In the second situation, you are not. As this relates to anxiety, the theory is that if you expose yourself to the fearful stimuli until your anxiety decreases, over time, you'll become less and less anxious when presented with the trigger. Another more recent theory suggests that habituation isn't as important as willingness to have the sensations, thoughts, and behavioral urges that accompany anxiety. Willingness is important because of the cognitive component of anxiety. Unlike your sense of smell, which habituates regardless of what you think about the smell, anxiety increases and decreases based on how you interpret the situation. That is, if while your heart is beating quickly or while you're having unwanted intrusions or while you're crossing over a bridge, you think to yourself, this is really dangerous or something equivalent, your brain will pump more and more of the fear response through your body and you'll feel more afraid. Again, this is unlike your sense of smell in that even if you thought the smell is really bad, you would eventually stop noticing the smell. The way in which cognitive interpretation influences the fear response is called anxiety sensitivity or second fear. Anxiety sensitivity is the part that is responsible for the anxiety disorder, not the anxiety state itself. Thus, exposure in and of itself is not sufficient for overcoming anxiety disorders. Exposure must be done in the right way. Exposure is done the right way when you understand the point of the exposure and you willingly expose yourself to the possibility of anxiety with the belief that experiencing anxiety will actually help you, your body learn that you're not in danger over time. Frequently, if you try embodying this attitude, you will not feel anxious. This attitude effectively conveys to the mind that it's not in danger. Sometimes you might start trying to trick your mind into wanting anxiety when you truly don't prefer to have it. 
this is a common experience in the process of exposure and response therapy. Um, you might expose yourself to, to your anxiety and qu get quick relief. Then if you still really fear whatever it is that you're triggered by, um, it's likely that your anxiety will come back or pop up at different times. The problem there is that you can't trick your own mind. So the attitude of willing acceptance towards thoughts, feelings, and behavioral urges that occur with the fear response um, must be authentic for long-term relief. Again, as we're talking about the therapeutic attitude of willing acceptance, the major concept is that anxiety disorders are created, maintained by, and intensified by avoidance, and that willing acceptance of the thoughts, feelings, and sensations will not only give you relief um, in the moment of anxiety, but over time, you'll stop thinking that those thoughts, feelings, and sensations are threats, and you'll stop feeling anxious. In this series of short lectures, you'll learn about the core principles for overcoming an anxiety disorder or OCD. In this lecture, we'll discuss how to prepare for the anxious moment. To prepare for the anxious moment, we want to identify triggers as opportunities to practice, predict distressing thoughts, feelings, sensations, and interpretations, use our values to motivate commitment to the present moment, and use helpful self-talk to strengthen our motivation and commitment to practice before, during, and after the anxious moment. First, let's talk about triggers. Triggers can be internal and they can be external. External triggers are the things that show up in your environment that make anxiety more likely. Common triggers that come to mind may include the kitchen, the door, any part of your home that reminds you of something that could go wrong. It could be your car, it could be the bus, it could be any part of the commute on your way to work, it could be showing up to work, being in a meeting, getting an email, having to give a presentation. There's all kinds of external triggers that are frequent and common for many people. You may also have internal triggers, such as an intrusive thought or an anxious sensation that doesn't necessarily have an extra predictable external trigger related to it, but the internal sensation or thought could show up at any time. We wanna shift our way of thinking about those triggers away from bracing and avoiding over into opportunity. In order to teach ourselves that we can handle the anxious moment, we actually need to go towards our triggers. We need, to tr we need to trigger those sensations and those thoughts on purpose. Anytime you have either an internal or an external trigger, it's a huge opportunity to practice and show yourself that you can relate to it differently rather than avoiding. You wanna see it as an opportunity in terms of predicting your distressing thoughts, feeling sensations, and interpretations. You wanna predict them ahead of time not because you have to know exactly what's gonna happen perfectly in the anxious moment, but the better you predict what's likely to occur, then the easier it'll be to get some distance from it. So if your trigger often makes your heart rate go up or often makes you sweaty, you, um, you wanna prepare for that. You might frequently have the same types of intrusions based on certain tr triggers. These are all helpful to identify beforehand so that when it shows up, Rather than thinking, oh no, why am I anxious? What's happening? You can think, oh yeah, I was expecting this. This happens when I go towards my triggers and this is my opportunity to practice. The secondary process that's very common in terms of predicting distressing thoughts and interpretations is that you may have sensations and you may have intrusive thoughts 
And then you may feel hopeless, helpless, or worthless because it's happening again. So even if even remembering that um, I have this type of thought, I have this sensation, and then my mind says, oh no, it's happening again. This is going to happen forever. I'm never going to get out of this. Even noticing that your mind does that is helpful to predict. That's a common secondary process that you want to predict because then you can say again, oh yeah, that's what happens when I do this type of activity and not act as though it's truth. You can get to the other side of it without feeling like it's true. When we think about using values to motivate commitment to the present moment, you really want to be thinking, why is it worth it to experience this? The whole concept of going towards your anxiety is to get through your anxiety in a way that makes sense to you. Then it'll be worth it to to get yourself anxious on purpose and hang out there really for its own sake so that you can show yourself rather than needing to avoid, compulse, get reassurance, or otherwise neutralize your anxious experience, it can be an opportunity for efficacy to feel strong and courageous that you could go toward it. You can predict what's going to happen, and then you can go towards it on purpose. Show yourself you can handle it and get to the other side. And believe me, it'll feel worth it. So going towards the anxious moment for its own sake is an opportunity for efficacy and um, to feel strong. But it's also worth it to think through the other ways which avoiding anxiety undermines the life you want to live. Whether it's because you can't spend time with the people that you love or you can't do things that you want to do, um, it's important to recognize that your avoidances are likely impairing your life in some way or causing you um, more distress than is necessary. So reflecting on that and remembering in the anxious moment that it's really an opportunity um, if you get to the other side can be a helpful way to, to maintain motivation even when you're distressed. Finally, let's talk about some self, helpful self-talk that can strengthen your motivation and commitment to the anxious moment. We wanna break it down into three different parts your anticipatory anxiety, your situational anxiety, and your post-event processing. In regard to anticipatory anxiety, you wanna think about anticipatory anxiety as an indication of your past rather than a prediction of your future. Anticipatory anxiety is a feeling, not a fact or prediction. What happened in the past in a similar situation is that you braced and avoided, and now your fear circuitry says, hey, watch out there, here comes the trigger again. I'm gonna give you some extra adrenaline so that you know how to avoid. Um, you want to, when this starts to happen, you wanna override your fear circuitry and say, hey, no, actually it's okay. We can hang out with this. This is just anticipatory anxiety. It's not predicting that anything bad's gonna happen. It's just indicating that in the past I've avoided. And it's important to have some amount of self-talk around that anticipatory anxiety so that you don't avoid again. Rather, you want to make it to the anxious moment where then you have some, um, where then you have the opportunity to learn something new. When you get to that anxious moment, you want to see it as an opportunity, as we've been talking about. So you might be thinking, great, I was hoping for this. This is my chance. I want to go after my anxiety. I want this to get worse. I want this to make me stronger. You really want to invite in all the sensations and whatever thoughts you're having and whatever even 
um, your secondary process might be. You know, that's the part of you that says, oh no, it's happening again. You want to allow that and invite that in too. Those interpretations are important to see as interpretations and to it's important to allow those to be there without dwelling in them. Finally, after the experience, you can expect to be sensitized and expect to have the urge to replay the situation. You can also reframe that as my mind wants to replay this because I'm doing something I value rather than getting caught up in self-criticism that often comes after an anxious experience. When people replay, they usually find something they've done wrong and then they use it to beat themselves up afterwards. An alternative would be to say, yep, I'm sensitized, I'm proud that I did something that I value, and I'm just gonna let any interpretation or the urge to criticize, just, just let that pass. Just let it be there and let it pass. Redirect my attention to the present moment. If you regularly, in summary, if you regularly predict what triggers you may have, work to orient yourself to seeing the, the anxiety that you experience as an opportunity to practice, and then have good self-talk through your anticipatory anxiety, your situational anxiety, and your post-event processing afterwards, you're likely to have memories of success that not only are great um, biologically for um, teaching your body that you can handle it, but you also cognitively will have memories of success that you can draw upon in the future. In this podcast mini-series, we're discussing the core principles for overcoming anxiety and OCD. Today, we're discussing how to embrace uncertainty. Intolerance of uncertainty is the tendency to react negatively on an emotional, cognitive, and behavioral level to uncertain situations and events. Beliefs that uncertainty means something bad and that you shouldn't feel uncertain make uncertainty more intolerable and more likely to become a problem. You might fear becoming uncertain. Fearful anticipation of uncertainty often leads to avoidance, and you might avoid anything that could make you feel uncertain. You might feel paralyzed when you feel uncertain, and your inhibitory anxiety in the face of uncertainty can often lead to difficulty thinking, talking, making decisions, and taking action. When you're feeling very anxious, it's normal to attend to your sensations, uncomfortable feelings, and catastrophic thoughts over everything else. You are not being selfish or at risk of insanity. The nature of the anxious response is such that your mind fixates on uh, your attention on a potential threat in order to help you survive. Some part of you knows that you aren't running from a tiger and that it would be okay to stop scanning the environment for danger. Another part of you does not know whether or not you're in danger. That part of you is uncertain. It's okay, you're not doing it on purpose, it isn't your fault that it's happening, and you aren't doomed to feel this way forever. When you avoid your experience of uncertainty on an emotional, cognitive, or behavioral level, you make uncertainty more likely and it becomes its own problem. Instead, strive to identify your experience of uncertainty, allow it, and even embrace it as an opportunity. Some, here's some helpful self-talk that can help you accept and embrace uncertainty. You might say, it's okay to feel uncertain. Feeling uncertainty doesn't mean I've done something wrong. And anticipatory anxiety is a feeling, not a fact or prediction. That is, it's an indication of what happened in my past, not a prediction of my future. Uncertainty doesn't mean something bad is going to happen. Uncertainty signals opportunity. I don't know if something will go poorly, 
but I also don't know what could go well. It's okay for me to take the smallest next step in the presence of uncertainty. Here are some behavioral strategies that reduce intolerance of uncertainty. Commit to valued behavior to reduce indecisiveness. Practice guessing at the smallest next step. Live in your decision, including taking responsibility for the consequences of those decisions. Bring up an attitude of curiosity so you can learn from the consequences of your decisions and alter your future decisions. This type of learning prevents paralyzing self-criticism and eventually allows you to relax into uncertainty. There's nothing, about, there's nothing certain about life. We're all in a constant state of uncertainty. We don't feel intolerant of that uncertainty in every domain of life. Thus, the uncertain parts of life that give you anxiety and the urge to avoid provide a roadmap to your core fears. Rather than beating yourself up about those fears, seek to understand them so you can create a strategic plan to overcome them. A strategy is a plan of action designed to achieve a major aim. Cognitive behavioral therapy has the reputation of teaching coping skills that help people reduce their anxiety. It's true that if you use the skills to learn to relate to your anxiety effectively, those skills will reduce your anxiety. The skills themselves won't give you what you want though, a life with less anxiety and less psychological suffering. Think about this in comparison to basketball. The skills themselves, dribbling, shooting, and passing, don't win games. The skills are necessary, but they are not sufficient to win the games. Winning the games requires strategy. It requires offensive and defensive plays, flexible coordination of those plays, depending on contextual factors like who's in the game on each team. Anxiety treatment includes skills, identifying and accepting sensations and feelings, diffusing from and challenging unhelpful thoughts, and choosing value-based behaviors, but it also needs a strategy. You need to identify the process that maintains your suffering and then develop a strategy for changing it. Compulsions, reassurance-seeking, safety behaviors, and avoidances are all behaviors that maintain anxiety disorders. Rather than evidence of weakness or limitation, it's really an incredible process. I have nothing but the utmost respect for what your mind comes up with to try to alleviate your suffering. I strongly believe that you should respect your mind too. In fact, I think the only way to alleviate your suffering in the long term is to befriend your own mind, watch it, listen to it, and learn to work with it compassionately. An anxious moment is an opportunity for confidence, and escaping it undermines your potential for confidence. I mean it when I say that uncertainty is an opportunity. When you feel uncertain about whether you have a disease, it probably doesn't feel like an opportunity. Fearing that you'll panic in front of people you like probably also doesn't feel like an opportunity. Same with worrying all night rather than sleeping, not an opportunity. I understand, but I disagree with you. When you're relating effectively to yourself in the middle of the night while you're stuck on a random intrusion, you will know it. It's a private confidence that only you share with yourself. Once you have that confidence, you can do anything. That's why your anxiety disorder is a gift. Because you have to practice observing yourself, developing a strategy for how you're gonna to relate to yourself and experimenting compassionately, compassionately with yourself in smaller moments, you have the chance to develop a much deeper confidence in yourself that you can carry with you at all other times in your life. If you expose yourself to anxiety, but then you check or get reassurance, you undermine your chance at self-confidence. 
The habit of undermining yourself leads to doubts, self-criticism, and uncertainty. Doubts, criticism, and uncertainty narrow your thinking. When your thinking is narrow, your awareness of opportunities available to you is limited. So avoidance narrows your thinking, limits your opportunities, and undermines your potential. Don't just refrain from avoidance because your psychologist told you it makes your anxiety worse. Stop avoiding so that you can develop the internal resources needed to reach your potential. Practice patiently and compassionately with yourself so you can have the chance to see who you can become. It's okay if you forget your strategy and avoid anyway sometimes. Meet yourself where you are. That's the moment of your opportunity. When you engage in avoidance behaviors, try thinking, my mind works perfectly. What can I do right now that would give me more self-confidence rather than fear? Your anxious moment is your opportunity for greater confidence. In this podcast mini-series, we're discussing the core principles for overcoming anxiety and OCD. Today, we're discussing how to avoid avoidances. Your response to an anxiety state depends on your interpretation of the meaning of that state. The meaning you give it, um, the meaning that you give an anxiety state ranges from danger on one side to opportunity on the other. People who believe anxiety equals danger avoid internal and external situations that make them anxious. This is the primary misinterpretation that you're making if you have an anxiety disorder. It's true that the fear response, including sensations, thoughts, and an urge to problem solve or avoid, is triggered when when there is a perceived threat, but the presence of the fear response does not equate to danger. What's more, if through learned behavior, you start believing that the fear response itself is dangerous, you will avoid more and more until your world is very small. For example, if you fear that your sensations will lead to a panic attack, you could avoid anything internally or externally that might lead to a panic attack. Or if you fear having certain thoughts, you will avoid internal and external situations that might trigger those thoughts or perform physical or mental compulsions to make those thoughts go away when they inevitably occur. In both cases, you are misinterpreting the fear response as equivalent to danger. The more you avoid, the more often they will occur. People who believe anxiety is uncomfortable but not dangerous pursue internal and external situations that make them anxious and then attempt to do things to cope with anxiety. Western society encourages to think this way. It's a slightly better position than equating anxiety with danger, but the problem with this position is that the attitude still lacks acceptance of whatever thought or feeling is occurring. As long as you feel like you have to work to manage your, what you experience, you'll risk getting burnt out by the effort of staying in control. For long-term well-being, it's best to learn to open up to whatever thoughts or feelings occur without believing that those thoughts or feelings need to be managed. People who believe that anxiety equals opportunity pursue internal and external situations that make them anxious on purpose and then interpret the feeling as excitement. The most helpful attitude towards anxiety is one where it is interpreted as normal, healthy, and an indication that the person is engaging in something challenging and uncertain. Professional athletes, musicians, and performers all feel the same physiology as the anxious person when they are about to perform. They are able to channel their anxiety into high performance because they accept and get distance from their self-doubt and use the physical sensations to urge them towards behavior that is effective in that moment. 
even the anxiety associated with an unwanted intrusive thought occurring in OCD can be reinterpreted as an opportunity for curiosity towards your mind and how it functions. It can deepen your compassion for yourself and others. This attitude about any form of anxiety is available to everyone and is learnable. We use the word experiential avoidance rather than simply avoidance to remind ourselves of how we avoid both ourselves and the world around us. Situational avoidance is usually easy to identify. Also, many anxiety sufferers don't avoid situations. Still, anxiety is always maintained by avoidance. We all avoid thoughts, feelings, sensations, memories, and urges with varying degrees of intensity and rigidity. Any good discussion of how to avoid those avoidances should start with action. Tell me what you want to move towards and I can help you stop moving away. By making commitments to behavior, you take the philosophical stance that you can change. You believe that attempting to change in an intentional way is an, a worthy goal. The commitments you make are process commitments, not outcome commitments. You commit to studying, not acing a test. You commit to showing up to work, not performing perfectly at work. You commit to initiating a conversation, not having the best conversation of your life. In some ways, it's common sense to commit to a process, not an outcome. You can't control outcomes, you can control your process. And yet you may make outcome goals that constantly feel elusive to you. To achieve a sense of efficacy and mastery, Commit to processes that lead you towards your goals and then relax into those processes. So in this case, your process would be to learn the subtle and not so subtle ways that you avoid and then work on doing the smallest next step towards, the, towards approaching those things. When you, so then, to what process should you commit to? I love David Brooks' definition of commitment. He says, making a commitment simply means falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it that will carry you when your love falters. Let's invite anxiety to guide us towards surrender and to teach us how to create structure around this process-based goal. If your goal is to cultivate a more effective relationship with your anxiety, your process could include any behavior that gives you the opportunity to practice going towards and accepting that anxiety. In this podcast mini-series, we're, we're discussing the core principles for overcoming anxiety and OCD. Today, we're discussing how to float through anxiety compassionately. It takes humility and courage to accurately assess where you are and commit to the next step. If you feel intense anxiety just getting out of your house, the idea of obtaining and committing to a job on a daily basis might seem beyond what's possible for you. If you feel intense anxiety sending an introductory text message to a potential romantic partner, the ongoing vulnerability required to sustain a long-term relationship might similarly feel overwhelming. Thinking about this, many individuals with anxiety disorders get so discouraged that they lose the motivation to take the next step. It's important to see this as part of, part of the pattern of anxiety's game. Anxiety and his allies, self-criticism and depression will tell you, what you're doing is currently not good enough. This shouldn't be hard for you. You shouldn't have to practice this. You're never going to get to where you want to be. You need to be ready for this type of message and say back to it. Every time I identify, label, and allow an uncomfortable thought, feeling, or sensation, you get less power. What I'm practicing is a new process. It's not about my outcome in any given moment. It's okay that this is where I am and what I have to do. My fear circuitry has become conditioned by associations that don't make rational sense. 
for whatever reason, other people's fear circuitry has different associations than the ones I have. The only way to get to where I want to be is to gradually change these associations. If it's difficult to muster the compassion, humility, and courage to set small achievable goals on your way to overcoming your anxiety disorder, consider how you would teach a child to read. The child might really want to start reading a novel, but if he doesn't know his letters, he can't just jump into a text like that one. He might not completely understand how identifying letters is the beginning of a more complex process of combining letters to make sounds, combining sounds to make words, combining words to make sentences, and combining sentences to make stories that convey ideas and make meaning. You know that. So you're likely to be very patient with the child, encouraging him to, to start with the first step, continue to practice, reminding him that eventually he'll be able to read. You wouldn't criticize the child if he isn't making progress fast enough because there's no pace that's right for everything. And you know that pressuring him into trying to be someone he isn't won't help him read faster. If you saw him struggling, you might make it easier, meaning that you'd break it into smaller component pieces. You wouldn't make it easier because you didn't believe in him. You'd make it easier because you understand that he has to master the smaller components before he can master the more complex process. Reading is also a skill to be, is a skill to be mastered meaning that having greater motivation will increase his skill-based acquisition. As a good teacher, you'd work to keep him motivated because staying motivated is part of the process. Can you see the comparison to overcoming an anxiety disorder? Your anxiety disorder was created, intensified, and maintained by a cycle of fear, resistance, and avoidance of your thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The skills you need to step out of the cycle are the opposite of what you've tried so far. In the past, you have minimized, disregarded, and avoided your anxious thoughts, sensations, and feelings. Now you'll be identifying, labeling, inviting, and even provoking more anxious thoughts, feelings, and sensations. This identifying and labeling process is like learning the alphabet of anxiety. Per the metaphor, you won't be able to read, that is, to do the things you care about in the presence of anxiety with skill and grace, until you've practiced the basics over and over. It's important to do whatever it takes to stay motivated to take small steps. Self-compassion and humor are helpful strategies for staying motivated. And your suffering isn't just because of recurrent unwanted intrusive thoughts, chronic worry, a depressed mood, or another uncomfortable private experience. The, the interpretation that you, haven't, you shouldn't be having such an experience and that there's something bad, weak, or crazy about you for such experience creates, maintains, and intensifies your suffering too. This type of self-criticism hurts. Perhaps it started as the voice of a critical parent or some other significant person. Sometimes you continue to receive criticism from that person and that hurts. Self-criticism though, is you against you. The critical voice is no longer someone else's, now it's yours. You aren't on your own team. The game isn't fun and none of you is gonna win. You might criticize yourself in an attempt to control a thought or a feeling that you don't like. I suspect that it works every once in a while, especially if by working, you mean that you can avoid your thoughts and feelings long enough to get relief from them for a short period of time. It doesn't work to alleviate suffering long-term for anyone ever. Trying to make thoughts go away will make them more likely. Suppressing feelings will make them bigger and stronger. Some people who avoid their thoughts and feelings don't report having anxiety or depression, but they're just suffering differently. 
Numbing out our undesirable thoughts and feelings also numbs out desirable feelings like joy, trust, connection, compassion, affection, and playfulness. You might criticize yourself because you think it's the, um, the best way to learn is through criticism. This is just an old theory. Many of us were educated this way, but it isn't true. The best way to learn is to have the safety, time, space, and motivation to try. You have to feel safe to have the courage to put forth effort and risk failing. You don't need criticism when you make a mistake while learn, trying to learn. You need enough safety to keep trying. Are you on my team now? Let's help you get on your team. So compassion is understanding and staying with your own experience. It's an attitude where you're willing to stay with your experience and relate to it with openness and curiosity rather than criticism. Here's some helpful self-talk. Um, that's Here's some helpful and compassionate self-talk. You might be thinking, I shouldn't be feeling this. Other people don't feel this. Nothing happened that is so bad, so I shouldn't feel this badly. If you want to respond compassionately, you could say, of course this is happening. Of course I suffer. I'm human and all humans suffer. Also, I knew this particular suffering was coming because I understand my anxiety and my OCD. In the presence of a perceived threat, my mind has catastrophic thoughts that arrive with a spike of uncertainty. If I'm not prepared for this, I will naturally brace against this feeling and perceived threat, and naturally it'll feel worse. Of course, this is happening to my mind because of my biological vulnerabilities. Of course, I naturally brace because this is uncomfortable. It takes a lot of self-awareness, understanding, and a good strategy to get through a moment like this without making it worse. I just got tricked in this moment, but I can learn from it. Here's an opportunity for me to practice that strategy. You might have a thought like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? I always make this type of mistake. I'm never going to learn. This will have devastating consequences for me. I deserve to feel this because of what I did. I'm going to feel this forever. A compassionate response would be, there is no failure. There's only data. I tried or I'm going to try that, that thing I care about. It will either go well or it's exposure to thoughts and feelings that I'm working to accept. Either way, I'll learn and grow. And that means I win. Even though this moment, even though that in this moment, it seems like my mistake might have real consequences for me, I can still learn, grow, and change. I don't have certainty that the way I'm responding now and whatever comes next won't be better than what I had before. And that means I now have opportunity. You might have a thought like, why do I always feel this? Uh, there's something deeply wrong with me that makes me different from others and no one else will ever understand. A compassionate response is, this is a good opportunity to observe and describe what's happening within me. Because I'm human and inherently part of the rest of the community of humans, nothing happens within me that has never or will never happen to another human. It's not that no one else will ever understand me, but rather I, cur I currently don't understand me. This is a hard moment, but if I turn towards myself right now, I have a chance at understanding myself and my suffering better. I might forget what I'm experiencing now when I'm not suffering. So now is the best time to observe and describe what's happening. It's courageous to show up and learn what creates, maintains, and intensifies your anxiety and OCD. And I'm proud of you for taking that next step. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. 
As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategies shared here. Thank you.